Hello and welcome to episode 67 of The Five By, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. This week, Ruel and Sarah return to favorite games, with the former looking at terraforming Mars Prelude, while the latter returns to Space Base to explore the emergence of shy Pluto. Meanwhile, I'll take a look at a more recent release with Tales of Glory, while Meeple Lady takes us back in time to Steffenfeld's classic Trajan. But first up, go ahead and grab a coffee and get comfy, and take a listen as Christy starts us off with her thoughts on Summoner Wars. Once in a while, I encounter those desert island questions. If you were stuck on an island for the rest of your life, what book would you take, what movie would you take, etc. And I don't usually have one. But I do have a beloved desert island two-player board game, and that game is Summoner Wars. It has virtually infinite replayability, thinky hand management, and lots of ways to be creative and try out different strategies. Each game consists of a battle that produces its own emergent narrative, and there are so many suspenseful games that come down to the wire. This year, 2019, marks Summoner Wars' 10th anniversary as a game system. It was published in 2009 by Plat Hat Games and designed by Colby Dauk. The art is by J.J. Ariosa, David Richards, and Gary Simpson. Summoner Wars is a card-based game that you play on a board, and it's basically your deck of people, creatures, or animals against your opponent's deck. There are all of these different themed armies you can play as, and these are called factions. Some of the factions draw on fantasy characters such as elves, orcs, and so on. Others, like the Benders or the Filth, are more original. All of the decks are playable and ready to go out of the box, so you can just find something that appeals to you and you're ready to start playing. Summoner Wars is like a minis game in the sense that you're controlling your characters, but instead of minis, everything is represented on cards. The cards show the attack value and life points of your characters, and they also have special abilities that you can use as you play. It might be things like, this archer can shoot from farther away, or this berserker gets to attack all adjacent enemies. You roll dice to resolve attacks, so there is some luck in the game. I would call it luck management since there are things you can do to influence your odds. Some factions have their own special ways of mitigating luck, but I know people who still don't care for Summoner Wars due to its use of dice, so it's going to depend on your taste. Each faction is controlled by a summoner. The summoner is the leader of your faction, and they have their own stats and ability that is in keeping with the theme of their faction. The object of the game is to kill your opponent's summoner. It doesn't matter how many cards your opponent has left on the board or in their deck, the game is over when a summoner dies. Many of my games have come down to a summoner on summoner shootout at the end, which is so exciting. Beyond attacking, you can also build walls that your units can hide behind, and each faction comes with its own set of events that you can play to temporarily gain special abilities or make particular things happen in the game. However, you might not always want to use those cards because your units, or your characters, have a cost to play according to how powerful they are, and you pay that cost with other cards that you've set aside. So each turn you draw up to five cards, and then you have to consider which ones you can afford, or if you would rather set aside some of those cards in order to play other cards on a future turn. That's called building magic. The other way to get magic is to kill your opponent's units, because those cards go into your magic pile. There are a lot of different factions and sets in the Summoner Wars system. Although it is a card-based game, all of the content is consistent from copy to copy, so there is no such thing as rares or trading. The starter sets are pairs of decks, 
phoenix elves versus tundra orcs, and guild dwarves versus cave goblins, but they're all interchangeable. Those come with paper boards. There are also several factions sold individually. The first larger set that they came out with was the master set, which had six factions and a real board. There are also a few decks that are not standalone called reinforcement decks. These let you do a little bit of custom deck building by swapping cards in and out, but still having the same faction and flavor. Plaid Hat has also done a bunch of variants on the existing factions. They did a series of decks called Second Summoners that gives you a new leader, new events, and new units for your factions. You can totally play with those decks on their own, plus all of the units are interchangeable with the older cards from that faction. And finally, the latest master set they've released is called Summoner Wars Alliances, in which each faction is a mashup of the theming and abilities of two of the older factions. That set comes with a neoprene board and custom dividers for all of your cards. Summoner Wars is available as an app for both iOS and Android. You can play against the AI or asynchronously against human opponents. The starter sets, individual factions, and master set are all available either in the base app or as additional purchases. The second summoners and alliance decks are not available because the programming gets more complicated along with the game design, but the app works well on tablets and is a great way to try out the game. There's also a Facebook group for Summoner Wars, and you can play all of the factions in an online environment called Vassal. This game has over 1,500 faction combinations you can play. The replayability is off the charts. My husband and I have been keeping a spreadsheet of our matches. We've played about 75 games since 2012, and this is inspiring me to log some plays in 2019. You can see my spreadsheet and a few other Summoner Wars photos on Twitter at D6Seamarie. Thanks for listening. The year is 2315, and the Earth's resources continue to dwindle. The world government has decided to begin its biggest mission to date, making Mars a habitable planet. Several corporations have been tasked with terraforming the Red Planet over multiple generations. Will your corporation be the one to complete this seemingly impossible feat? Or will one of your rivals be the first to conquer this strange new world? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. Let's take a look at the card-driven engine-building game Terraforming Mars and its expansion Prelude. Terraforming Mars was released in 2016 and Prelude in 2018, both by Stronghold Games. Both were designed by Jacob Frixilius and feature art by Isaac Frixilius. You and your opponents take on the roles of corporations attempting to terraform Mars. You'll do this by playing project cards, which are one-time events or automated cards with instant benefits, or ongoing action or benefit cards. You have a player board that tracks your production and available resources of mega credits, aka space bucks, steel, platinum, plants, energy, and heat. You'll use these to play project cards from your hand or to use a standard project on the board. One game round represents one generation, and you'll take turns until everyone's passed. On your turn, you may perform one or two actions. Most of the time, you'll play a card from your hand using your resources to gain its benefit. You may also pay for milestones you qualify for, or awards you're trying to earn for endgame victory points. When certain tasks are performed, you'll raise one of the three global parameters that track the terraforming of Mars, temperature, oxygen, and ocean. When all three of these have hit their maximum values, the game ends and the player with the most points wins. Three years after its release, Terraforming Mars continues to get a lot of love from gamers. Every time I play this game, I find myself fully immersed and engaged as I try to ready Mars for human life. 
the main card-driven engine building is easy to learn, but can be tough to master. Each round begins with four new cards dealt to each player. If you're playing the draft variant, which is my favorite way to play, you'll often find yourself with some tough decisions. Do you keep a card for your own engine, or do you hate draft a card just to keep it out of your opponent's hands? And how do you make your cards work together as the game progresses? It's an awesome game, grand in scope, yet smooth playing from round to round. I love how turns get more difficult as you try to squeeze every little bit out of the engine you've built. One of my favorite things about the game, in fact, is the flavor text. From the rulebook to the cards themselves, most of it relates to how we might be able to terraform Mars. It's part of an experience that feels like both science and science fiction. Terraforming Mars isn't without its flaws, however. For me, the artwork and components are subpar for the game experience. After my first play, I immediately thought that a deluxe version should be released with better components and new art. The art isn't entirely bad, it's just all over the place. The cards are inconsistent, sometimes you have artist renditions of space stations or events, other times you have actual generic looking photos of people in meetings. It's jarring to go from a neatly rendered event in space to a Facebook style photo of a dog. The board is gorgeous though, and based on actual Mars photos, with neat hexes for you to place your tiles on, but the infamous player boards are as bad as everyone says they are. You're trying to track your various resources and production with cubes on what amounts to thick paper. One slight bump of the table or a badly timed sneeze could mean the end of your game as you're trying to remember what numbers everything was on. This is my biggest complaint about Terraforming Mars. You're not only buying the game, but you're basically forced to buy the broken token player boards too. Well, maybe you're not forced to. I've played several games with the standard player boards and managed not to jar the cubes loose but I feel a whole lot better when I'm using the broken token boards. Your cubes are simply more secure. The other gripe I've had has been the slow going start at the game. After choosing your corporation and paying for your initial project cards, you'll be hard pressed to get anything going with your limited resources. And that's where Prelude comes into play. Prelude gives you two Prelude cards, which are basically extra resources and bonuses to get your engine going sooner. You'll play these before your first turn, so you'll have plenty of resources to work with. I always include Prelude whenever I play Terraforming Mars now. It reminded me of author Elmore Leonard's 10 Rules of Writing, try to leave out the parts that readers tend to skip. The parts that gamers would certainly skip in this game are those early turns where you only play one or maybe two cards before waiting for the next round. With Preludes, you have more choices since you have more resources. Do you go for a big event right away, or do you build a few smaller action spaces for yourself? Or do you bump up your production? Terraforming Mars is meant to be a slow grind, and with each round representing a generation, thematically it's right on the money. But with Prelude, it's a nice jumpstart to the action without sacrificing gameplay. You get new choices of corporations, new project cards to add to the main deck, and a whole bunch of Prelude cards that give you resources. You might even trim off 15 to 20 minutes of playtime, which is a good thing. Terraforming Mars Prelude takes a great game and makes it better. It's faster in the opening rounds, but sacrifices none of the Terraforming Mars experience. Like those broken token player trays, Prelude isn't absolutely necessary, but once you've played with it, there's no turning back. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Five by listeners, it's Ruth here talking about a surprise favorite game picked up at this year's Origins Game Fair. Tales of Glory from Uncama asks a simple question. What use is it being a hero if you don't have a really good story to tell about your exploits? 
Designed by Romaine Chaston, this 2019 game has two to five players attempt to collect characters, treasures, locations, and defeated foes to add to their personal tale in an attempt to craft the most impressive saga over a 10-year career. Each year or round of the game has two phases, a drafting phase in which players gain tiles representing story elements, and a placement phase where the tiles must be connected into the tale they're crafting. Tiles are displayed in numbered spaces on a board, with higher numbers costing an extra resource over the cost already printed on the tile. Players will secretly select a numbered card from their hand representing the tile they want, before simultaneously revealing. Tiles will then be assigned in turn order, so if more than one player has chosen the same tile, it goes to whoever gets first pick. But all is not lost if the tile you want's already gone when it comes around to you. Once everyone who was able to get their first choice of tile gets that tile, then anyone left over gets to select from the rest of the tiles. I like that you're never stuck with nothing. You just might have to rethink your choices once everyone else got their pick. And if you truly can't afford the tile that you wanted or that you're left with, well then you can always discard a tile for resources instead. Now that everybody has a tile, they get to place those into their tableaus. Each square tile has connection points on some or all of its sides, and the tiles have to be placed in a grid without being rotated so that all connections are valid. So players aren't just looking for tiles that bring juicy rewards, they're also looking for tiles that fit the connections they have available. Plus, some of the location tiles have bonuses if they make a connection on one side with a particular type of tile, while other connection points feature a half-key symbol. Join together the two halves of a key when you place a tile, and you get a token to place unlocking a chest somewhere on the tiles you've collected, gaining you further rewards. These can be points or other resources. Once everyone has placed and taken whatever they get, a particular number of the unchosen tiles are discarded depending on player count, the rest slide down into the lower numbered spaces, and then the board is filled back up for the next year. After 10 rounds, players will count up the victory points they gain during the game, adding in any points gained from endgame tiles and reward points for having the majority of each type of resource when the game ends. Whoever finishes this calculation with the most points clearly had the most thrilling story, and therefore must be the greatest hero of those assembled. Tales of Glory takes elements reminiscent of other games and combines them into a satisfying whole. This simultaneous selection of the tile you want is reminiscent of games like Episode 63's Go Nuts for Donuts, although here you aren't forced to discard a tile if more than one person selects it. The placement phase, meanwhile, makes me think of classic tile-line games like Carcassonne, as players have to ensure all the edges mesh properly. This, in my opinion, makes Tales of Glory a good next-step game, as it combines multiple mechanisms found in so-called gateway games, but uses them as part of something larger. That being said, it's still interesting enough to be fun for more experienced gamers. And the game also comes with add-in optional tiles to give those players something else to plan around from the start. I was actually originally drawn to playing Tales of Glory after my friend bought it at the show because of the art. Quite frankly, the art is a delight, and Miguel Coimbra has done a wonderful job creating a vibrant, colorful world full of interesting heroes and other characters. But after playing my friend's copy of the game, I was thrilled to discover a fast-playing, fun drafting game with a spatial element, and so I immediately grabbed a copy for myself. 
Playing in just 30 to 45 minutes, it's also a great game for after dinner, although maybe not a great one for playing in public, as there's a lot of tiny, tiny tokens. But if you're given the opportunity at some point to forge your own story in Tales of Glory, then I highly recommend taking the chance. You might just find a new favorite game. For the 5 by this has been Ruth. When I'm not fighting over tiles, you can find me on Twitter at Ruth, that's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I was skeptical when I heard that Space Base was coming out with a legacy expansion. I mean, Space Base Legacy? Really? In my opinion, Space Base is basically an abstract game with pictures of spaceships on the cards. But the expansion said it would be a series of story-based scenarios that introduce new content in a narrative structure. Where would they come up with enough story to do that? Now, it's not like I wasn't going to buy it. Space Base has been one of my go-to games since it came out in 2018, just last year, and I raved about it in episode 47 of The 5 by I love legacy games, and I was curious to find out how they would apply the format to Space Base. Of course I was going to try it. Designed by John D. Clare and published by AEG in early 2019, Space Base's legacy expansion is called Space Base The Emergence of Shy Pluto. For your benefit and mine, I'll be calling it Shy Pluto for the rest of this review. You're welcome. As the legacy name suggests, Shy Pluto contains sealed content you unlock over a series of games. This review is spoiler-free. I will talk about the game only in general terms and won't reveal any specifics about mechanisms or components. Since I've already reviewed Space Base itself, I won't discuss in detail how to play. Instead, check out the earlier review in episode 47 if you're not familiar with Space Base. Shy Pluto comes in a small box with sealed components plus a legacy deck, which you read when instructed to do so. There are legacy cards for the beginning of each game, and sometimes when milestones are reached in the middle of a game. I confess, I tended to zone out during the flavor text part of each legacy card, and only start paying attention when we got to the part about new rules. Apologies to the people who read those cards. I hope that wasn't obvious at the time. Like I said, in my opinion, Space Base is an abstract game. I appreciate that someone went to the effort of writing that flavor text, but built as it was on top of a nearly theme-free structure, Shy Pluto just never felt like a real narrative to me. And I think that's okay. Shy Pluto isn't trying to be Betrayal Legacy. It isn't trying to create a sprawling, immersive narrative. It's trying to be a fun way to introduce new content and new mechanisms bit by bit, game by game. And it succeeds admirably. I've played through Shy Pluto's full campaign twice, with four players and with two, and I had a great time with both. I've played expansions before that came with modules you can choose to add in. I think it's a great idea, but I find that I don't usually get around to trying them all. Shy Pluto showed me that the legacy format is a terrific way to deal with that. It gave us a structure to add in new mechanisms in an order that made sense and sometimes had us remove a mechanism which prevented the game from getting too cumbersome. And always, the legacy deck held out that promise that every game of Shy Pluto would bring us something new and fun. The campaign is quick. It took me 11 games to play through Shy Pluto twice. A single campaign of any other legacy game I played would take longer. When you've finished, you have a version of Space Base with new cards, new strategies, and new mechanisms that are a great addition if the original Space Base was starting to feel a bit stale for your group. I will say that the new mechanisms add a great deal of luck to a game that was already pretty heavy on luck, and a lot of dice rolling to a game that was already heavy on dice. In our post-Shy Pluto games, there is so much luck that some of our favorite strategies just don't have a chance to build. We've agreed that when we play Space Base from now on, We'll always keep the new Shy Pluto cards in the deck, but we won't always use the new mechanisms. We enjoy it a lot, 
It's the kind of game where the dog keeps trying to find out why we're so noisy and excited. But it's a very different game. And we like original Space Base too. My only real caveat about Shy Pluto is really about Space Base in general. In my opinion, it's not great with two players. The fun of Space Base is the top actions, which you do on other people's turns, and you get a lot less of that in a two-player game. To fix that, we've added a two-player house rule. After each turn, we roll for a phantom player and both take the top actions. Then roll a single die to choose a card to discard. At first, the phantom player can only take from the first group, like us. As soon as we start buying from the second and then the third group, we roll a second die to see which group the discarded card will come from. This keeps two-player Space Base moving along at a snappy pace. There's so little interaction in Space Base that our simple Phantom Player does a pretty good job of simulating a four-player game. One question I've been asking myself is, is Shy Pluto really a legacy game? I think it's on the edge. It hits most of my definition of legacy, a structured series of games, reading a legacy deck, unlocking new rules and components when milestones are met. It is light on narrative, which I think is an expected part of the legacy experience, even if not part of the definition. The one place where Shy Pluto really isn't like a legacy game is no permanent changes are made to the components during the campaign. No stickers, no tearing up cards. Shy Pluto is easy to reset and play again. And such a quick, fun ride, you'll probably want to play through Shy Pluto more than once, like I did. And that's Space Base, The Emergence of Shy Pluto. My name is Sarah, and I'm really bad at tongue twisters. So when I'm not trying and failing to say Space 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 Game, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. There is undoubtedly a lot of Feld fanatics out there, aficionados of the game designer Stefan Feld. While I'm an Uwe Rosenberg lady myself, I can appreciate the brilliance of Feld's designs. And with each individual game, he does an excellent job of turning one core mechanism into the game's shining star. Some of his games are all about dice, some are about cards, but my personal favorite Feld game, Trajan, deals with a mechanism almost as old as time, the Mancala, stylized into a rondelle. Trajan, released in 2011 by Passport Game Studios, but now more widely available through Renegade Game Studios, is a 2-4 player game that plays in about 90 minutes. I haven't had a chance to look what in the latest version has been updated, so for the sake of this review, I'll be talking about the version in the black box. The game is loosely based in ancient Rome, but let's be honest, this could have been set anywhere. Trajan is your typical point salad that many Feld games are known for. That means there are a lot of different ways to score victory points. The game runs through the course of a year, which is divided into four quarters. Each quarter is split into four rounds on the time marker. The person with the most VPs after one year wins the game. Each player receives a player mat, which has spaces for collected tiles, and there's an action circle, the rondelle. The game begins with players randomly placing two action markers on their action circle, which represents the six actions you can take during your turn. There is also a larger main board that matches the six actions on the player mat. Trajan, in its most basic, basic form, is picking up all your action markers in one tray and moving them, one by one, around the circle. The Mancala mechanism, where your stop determines which action you will take on your turn, the more spaces you move along the action circle, the more spaces the time marker moves. Every rotation of the time track is a round, and the four rounds equal a quarter of the year. At the end of the round, the demand tile is flipped over, and at the end of the quarter, players must meet those three demands or lose VPs. There are six different actions you can take on the action circle. Seaport, Forum, Military, Trajan, Senate, 
and construction. The seaport action is where you can collect commodity cards and later ship them, gaining VPs for sets of cards required by the ships in play. The first person to ship using a specific ship during the quarter gains more VPs than later players. When taking the forum action, the player takes a tile of their choice from the forum section of the main board. These tiles can be bread, games, religion, or bonus actions. Bread, games, and religion tiles go toward meeting the demands at the end of the quarter. The next action is military. Military relates to the map section of the board in which players place legionnaires to the military camp and or move their legionnaires and military leaders to gain resources or VPs for that province. The fourth action is the Trajan action. When taking this action, players can choose a Trajan tile on the main board and put that new tile on their action circle. Trajan tiles provide bonuses when a player stops in that action space and has action markers that match the Trajan tile. The fifth action is the Senate action. When you take this action, your player marker moves along the Senate track to gain VPs. At the end of the quarter, the person who has advanced the most on the Senate track gets to pick the first bonus tile for endgame scoring. The second person picks the next bonus tile, but it will be flipped over to the gray side, which gives fewer VPs. The last action is construction. Players can move their legionnaires from their mat to the worker camp, or they can move their pieces from the worker camp to the construction site. This will give you more tiles to boost your sets for more VPs at the end of the game. At the end of each quarter, which is four rounds on the time marker, VPs are lost if demands are not met, the Senate track is resolved, and the tile slots are refilled on the main board. Ships are also reset. At the end of the game, VPs are assigned for a whole bunch of things, hence the point salad. Essentially, you get VPs for legionnaires in both camps, commodity cards, Trajan tiles, sets of construction tiles, and endgame bonus tiles. The part I most enjoy about Trajan is the action circle, where you plan your moves and drop the necessary colored action markers in order to complete a Trajan tile, or to take an action you want to do. My friends and I laugh that when we play this, we're all hunched over our table, super focused on our action circle, plotting and counting in a circular manner. The game also scales well for two, three, or four players, as there is a different time track used for each player count. I love being able to somewhat control the pacing of the game. Here's me picking up a giant handful of markers and taking my turn, speeding it up to the end of the next round. Also, the construction sites and the map on the board are both races, so it's super fun blocking people and getting resources that the other player desperately needs first. The brain burner Mankhala Rondel puzzle is what makes this game totally stand out. And that's Trajan. This is Meeple Lady for the Fiby. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as MeepleLady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You've been listening to The Five By. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Five By Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, FiveByGames.com. From all of us at The Five By, thanks for listening. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.